0: You know, I, I was chatting to one of our members, 7C3, who create the Sainsbury's Magazine. They have a team who are just sitting there looking at trends constantly, and they jump on trends ridiculously quickly and get it out there. So agility is absolutely massive, and I think it might not just be a trend for 2022, but it might just be the trend going forward.
1: Hello everybody and welcome back to this first Ensemble Podcast of the New Year. I'm Chris Sickliffe.
2: I'm Esther Thorpe.
3: And I'm Peter Houston. And that clip, the first of the year, that you just heard was from this week's interview with Rob John, MD of the Content Marketing Association. The CMA is running a panel with some members at the publishing show March 8th and 9th, as are we. And i spoke to rob about the trends that might be covered in that panel who the cma's members are who will be part of it and some of his favorite publisher focused content marketing examples
1: nice chat fantastic i'm sure that everybody's very excited to hear that they'll also be excited to hear that as of this podcast i have a very powerful new editing pc so if anybody can hear any difference in the podcast audio quality wise that's just in their mind, because I'm going to be doing the same old shit, but faster. <laughs> well, we've turned
3: we've t- we've t- we've t- me up, though, haven't we?
1: <laughs> we have. Okay. But before we get into that uh, interview, we're going to go through, as ever, our main story, and then a couple of news and briefs. So to begin with, the main story is we're going to be talking about the metaverse and what it means for publishers. Can I just ask the two of you what your experience of metaverse platforms are? Zip. Okay. I don't know that one, Esther.
2: There there aren't any.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, no. Here's the thing there are individual platforms which claim to be the metaverse. There is no unified metaverse yet.
2: I saw a horrendous good lifestyle video today that claimed to be the metaverse from Facebook. But, yeah.
1: Every. Oh, that
2: one! Nobody has legs. Like, where are everybody's legs?
1: That is. Okay. That one is horrific and it's not representative of even the most, like. Out there. So it's the, is the, the weird, cringy, on, yeah. like
2: Zach playing games with his friends that he released just before Christmas. Represents. That was correct. I don't want to be horrific. part of that either.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, here's the thing. Okay, so we can get into this because the the big question for publishers. I've been doing a, a effectively all last week. I was doing a week long look at the metaverse for the drum. wrote a piece for DCN about it as well. And the question is: Is there a place for publishers on there? And we've seen early examples of it. There's a newspaper, for instance, in Second Life. I don't know if the two of you knew about that. It's called the Second Life Inquirer. <laughs> if you have Second Life, you can go and visit the newsroom on that the platform.
2: What, what is Second Life?
1: Second, oh, my God, Peter. This Esther is, is too interest. young to know about no. Second Life. Yeah. Oh,
3: yeah, absolutely.
1: So Second Life was a very early iteration of the metaverse. It was, it was exactly what it sounds like. You'd create an avatar of yourself, and you'd go in there, you could set up shops, you could you know interact with other people you could interact with brands you could be you know a human uh, a frog a dirigible anything you wanted your avatar like, to appear as it was a bit like
3: sims but, but kind of uh, yeah you know with real world, real people well, not with real people <laughs> but with avatar with people being avatars
1: but see this is a really interesting case study because for those of you who know what second life is a lot of even at the time, I remember publishers making a big deal about the fact that they were they had extensions and they had footprints already in Second Life. It was going to be the future of it. They were going to have newsrooms in there. They were going to sell subscriptions. That obviously fell through. But the question now for publishers is, on the back of Web 2.0, when publishers got burned by their over-reliance on platforms like Facebook and mainly Facebook and also <laughs> Facebook for a, th- a third time, where, is there a place for them in the Web 3.0
3: what, you mean web 3.0 as defined by facebook
1: a slash meta yeah absolutely
2: <laughs> but wait no <laughs> so no, because web 3.0 and the metaverse and virtual reality are, are different i think this is the thing people are conflating they are, yeah, yeah. lots and lots of different things together Web 3.0 is, is... Well,
3: that's what zuck wants right not no, developers. no,
1: no, no, no. He wants. So, Web 3.0 is talking about decentralization of the yeah. internet. So, it's, it's effectively people taking power back into the user's oh, hands, being able to sell I stuff. See, it's not I being get, reliant get, on get, any one platform. Yeah, Zuckerberg get, actually wants the opposite. Yeah. He wants Meta to be the default platform for this. That's why, Esther, you saw that horrendous yeah. <laughs> sales pitch for Facebook Horizon, which is just cringeworthy, as cringeworthy as their presentation before Christmas. Yeah. But so, Reuters did a study, the Reuters Institute did a study, and they found that 8% of the news publishers currently say they intend to invest in metaverse products, which is so nebulous because nobody quite knows what the metaverse is at the moment. But
2: Let's, let's assume it's a virtual world that Facebook create in order to sell mm-hmm. their Oculus headsets, which I think they're now calling something else.
1: Oculus Quest. headsets.
2: There's, I mean, there's still a lot of confusion about whether, you know, will you be able to access this metaverse if you haven't got one of these headsets? Because the the sort of market the market penetration of these headsets is, is tiny. It's
1: tiny, yeah, yeah.
2: And the only people in the foreseeable future that are gonna be getting them are, are rich Westerners. It's not a market that is accessible to sort of I'm sure some rich East.
3: Easterners that are also buying them. Japan's probably got loads of them.
1: But here's the thing, that That, that is absolutely a concern. Uh, it's not the only way to access the Metaverse. A lot of the platforms like Decentraland and you know, even the early ones like uh, Roblox and to some extent Fortnite Creative do not require you to have a VR headset. The, hmm. the vision of it that Meta slash Facebook is putting across does require you to have an Oculus Quest 2. Now, I do have one of those because I'm an early adopter. I'm a nerd. So I got yeah, exactly. I mean, you also um, cover
2: this stuff. So yeah,
1: I do. and But their pitch isn't convincing me either. The problem is the publishers have already started dipping their toes in this. Either, you know, we, we, we've spoken about what they're doing with NFTs, for instance, which are a funding source which has been sort of like intrinsically linked with how the metaverse is going to fund itself and how creators in there are going to fund themselves. The problem is, Do you remember, God, it must have been like 2014, 2015. Emily Bell said that if there's money in it for publishers, they will just invest in Facebook. They will go all in on Facebook. She was obviously proven exactly correct. My worry is that Meta is going to throw so much money at publishers now that they're going to overextend themselves into this without any tangible ROI.
2: Like video.
1: Exactly like video, yeah.
2: And social video and reels and...
3: Nothing new under the sun, isn't it? Well, I, well exactly. Just keeps playing out. I think this is different in in its... The the actual underlying... I, don't know, I was going to use the word philosophy there. That's a bit high-flowing. But the, the ideas wrapped up in Web3 are really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. The problem is all the dickheads <laughs> round about. You know, with the monkey, the monkey n f all the, the NFT ad NFT, stuff, yeah, yeah. and uh, you know the shitcoin investment and all that stuff. It's just it's humanity ruining a really interesting idea.
2: Mm. Actually, publishers have been doing work in VR for at least the 10 years I've been working in the industry
1: I think it was Um, Washington Post did virtual town halls
2: I can remember um, I can remember uh, I think the FT did Hidden Cities
1: exactly yeah that was like 360 tours of cities yeah which was fantastic
2: and I think there's then something in um, I don't know if, if you're looking at possibly sort of bringing communities together if you've got sort of ideas in that then yeah you know there's some interesting ideas that you could have in that space or or going into places that people maybe couldn't before um but this this whole thing of do publishers need to be on facebook's platforms hmm. no you absolutely do not guys 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 guys
3: look at the fucking dumpster fire of social media at the moment and then amplify that in virtual spaces this is really not going to end well.
2: But for I journalism, say, I can still remember going to um, an expo and doing, do you remember the um, the Guardian did like a sort of, it was a virtual prison. Um, oh, 16
1: by 9. Yeah, it was fascinating. Yeah. It, was, it was great.
2: That as a piece of journalism was, was exceptional. It was really, really good. I can still remember it.
1: But that goes back to what you were saying at the start. That is distinct from the metaverse, which is social platforms, effectively yeah. you interacting with people in, it doesn't have to be VR. A lot of them aren't VR, but the fact that Meta is trying to push that does open it up to those abuses that we're talking about. But like you said, VR journalism, traveling while black, um, we wait. There's been some fantastic journalism VR projects that we we need to keep separate, I would argue, from the metaverse.
2: Um, yeah, and, and either way, they're still not accessible to people without the headsets.
1: <laughs> well, exactly, which, I mean, for fuck's sake, we can barely get like, with all the talk about paywalls, we're excluding enough people at the moment from quality journalism.
3: Well, thanks for joining yeah. us, for having the uh, Metaverse Explained. And next week, we'll be talking about Bitcoin and how you can invest to make yourself <laughs> ridiculous
1: rich. Except that the crash this week means that nobody's going to invest for a while, so that's good. Anyway, we should probably do nibs <laughs> before we like roll ourselves up into a big dystopian ball.
2: Uh, in more platform news, and my choice of news and brief this week is that TikTok and Instagram are both testing paid subscriptions for creators. So Meta owned Instagram announced that they were officially in early testing with a small group of just 10 creators in the US who are going to be able to offer their followers paid access to exclusive Instagram live videos and stories. Um, if if you are one of these people, you will also get a special badge. Um, I'm actually incredibly shocked that Instagram has taken 11 years to get to this point
1: i'm less surprised just because the relationship they had with brands and potential partners almost precludes suppose, like, this
2: like as soon as they saw twitch coming they should have been on that
1: but it but it's not the same so for instance twitch always had that uh creator audience focus as their like main like selling point Whereas Instagram, coming as it did from Facebook, always had that kind of like advertiser focus as well. So they wanted that middleman.
2: Well, TikTok, who is half their age, um, has has also (laughs) said just days later that they are also testing support for paid subscriptions. Mm. Um, So yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see those two duke it out.
3: You're saying this like, why have they not taken on subscriptions? Because subscriptions are such an incredibly great thing. That's not guaranteed for these platforms. It absolutely is not No, but it is for no. creators,
2: and you've got so many creators mm. on Instagram that have that have been like, "I'll oh, go to my Patreon." And you you think how yeah. how slow Instagram has been at things like I've like it's so many... only just enabled external links. It has been so focused on keeping people tight on that platform. How many of so these people really are actually
3: making a living on Patreon? You, they might be saying, "I'll oh, go to my Patreon," but I, the business I can... model there is just. I think
1: well, we no, can go about if... that the wrong way.
2: If you're on I was Instagram, thinking... most of most of your revenue, if you if you you know you end up being the influencer type that makes you money from ads and sponsorship deals and hashtag ad.
1: Mm. I was thinking about this. We've been going about this the entire wrong way because people now don't think about it in terms of making a living; they t- think about it in terms of side hustle.
3: Let's <sighs> hope that this is going to be the savior of these kind of people's careers. It will be the eternal side hustle.
1: <laughs> oh God, that is a, a that's like Sisyphus. That is the new like, like myth of Sisyphus.
2: The Sisyphus talk, 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 talking side hustles, coffee <laughs> <the> page. <laughs> if you go to <laughs> bloggers, support,
3: well, exactly. I mean, we could barely buy ourselves a coffee. fucking coffee. <laughs> we can barely buy ourselves a fucking coffee with the amount of money that we have Look, this is, this is our
1: first episode time. back, and we're already deep in existential crisis. <laughs> all right, moving on. So, ahead of Google's retirement of the third-party cookie, a number of German publishers and advertisers have raised a complaint with the EU. Nothing,
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Nothing particularly new there. This is the latest in a long line of campaigns against Google, effectively, from EU publishers, EU consumer groups. Um, even outside the EU, you know, we we spoke extensively last year about Australia's deal with, with Google and Facebook on behalf of publishers. But a report from the UK's competition watchdog advice that UK publishers with a digital focus risked revenue losses of up to 70% as a result of that cookie depreciation. So the move itself has been delayed multiple times, but at this point, I don't know that we can ever expect, you know, we, we've spoken about this uh, so many times, I don't know that we'll ever expect a, an end to that platform publisher hostility. It's The goalposts is just going to keep moving on both sides.
3: So Esther Esther chose a story for the lead in the newsletter. I think yesterday or the day before. Anyway, that's the beginning of this week. Uh, Brian Morrissey has said publishing is thriving so long as you cater to the affluent, and as he points out, that's always been the case. But he's talking about how uh, niche publishing is basically, a, you know, the best way to make money at the moment, and it, as he it says, it's always been like that. Rich people buy stuff and advertisers like people that buy stuff so that media that is targeted the rich people does well. Um, but I had a really interesting conversation today with someone we'll put on the podcast in a week or two who's running a parenting magazine for working class parents. I wanna she just got ripped into this model of oh here's a Prada handbag in your, you know, magazines for everyday people because that pride of handbag costs a thousand quid. So she went off on that. But the other thing that she was talking about is the people that are making these publications and that idea that working class people, as we have talked about before in the podcast, are not represented. Brian brought this up in the story. He said that um, when he was first looking for a job, he basically bailed because he knew someone whose parents were going to pay the rent. Mm. got it and the starting salary was just so so poor so i think there's a whole bigger conversation here about yeah is, is it is it become media for the rich in terms of accessibility but also in terms of the subject matter that ends up being covered did you see the story in the times about the nanny
1: oh god yeah that was ridiculous we had to cut back on our like 40 grand au pair yeah. in favor of like well, we had to we nanny. had
3: to stop a full time. We have to. We're thinking that <laughs> that was that. This is in a piece that is supposedly about combat and rising energy and food bills, um, and it was we're we're stopping having a full time nanny at forty grand because we're going to get a ten thousand pound a year old pair. Yeah, it's just like it's, there's two things going on there. One is utter utter cynicism, because that's just feeding the outrage engine. Yeah, because hundred times more people that read that story were outraged by it than were thinking of getting an au pair. But the other one is the insensitivity of it. And only someone who comes from a certain economic background could publish a headline of that without realizing how many people they were going to offend.
2: I would also give a shameless plug at this point. The the episode we put out last week <laughs> about the local news, um the US the local news startups in the US. Um, each of them is serving sort of underserved communities, whether that be like immigrant communities or um, places in news deserts, or you know these sort of really small local communities that have never had mental health access things like mm. that. Um, and and their insight on the business model side of it was it was really interesting coming at it from a sort of you know we're not targeting elites. <laughs> I, I was editing it at the same time all the whole Smith stuff came out, and I was just think actually it it, it was really refreshing to speak to people who weren't in that mindset.
1: Oh, actually, and if anybody wants to come on this podcast and talk about it, I think that's our raison d'etre.
2: As long as your surname's not Smith, please
1: yeah that's a bit bit elitist and
2: there's loads of people in this
3: country called smith that's one of the most popular soul names in the country you've just cut out of the podcast.
1: but how many of them are launching a new uh (laughs) publishing company aimed at college educated u.s (laughs) readers
2: no it was it was global it was the 200 global oh well
1: well fuck me then i guess it's gonna be fine
3: This week's guest is Rob John, MD of the Content Marketing Association. We spoke about the association's participation in the publishing show, its membership and where content marketing might fit within a publisher's revenue mix. First, I asked Rob what the CMA actually does.
0: A question <laughs> now the cma is, uh, this is the content marketing association uh we're, we're primarily a not-for-profit membership organization that is there to grow the content marketing industry so the kind of the ways we do that is you know granted it's changed during the pandemic as to before so i'll almost kind of give you before and after and, and present we used to run events every month uh in london across the uk Um, Now we run webinars because we obviously can't uh, get out to the moment, but it's all all about kind of growing the content marketing industry through putting on training, putting on events, research, and also uh, showing best practice for those who maybe aren't familiar with content marketing. And the the long answer is also the awards. The awards for us is a massive way to improve and grow content marketing because people see this sort of gold standard and they then see what content marketing can do and sort of that's that's another area we use to grow the industry.
3: How old is the Content Marketing Association? How long has it been going?
0: In, in its current format, I believe about two thousand and fourteen is when it changed right. to the Content Marketing Association because it was all because it was all set up for the publishing for it was the APA yeah. is what it was before. Yeah. Um so that was yeah, that was before my time. So I think it was around yeah. it may have even been a little bit earlier than two thousand and fourteen, but currently the way it is now with the Content Marketing Association from 2000, 2012, 2013
3: thousand twelve, twenty thirteen-ish. It's that idea that Uh, I still think of content marketing is quite a new thing, but actually it's as old as the hills. It's been going for years and years and
0: years. It really has, yeah. And I think obviously things are changing and I think one thing that I've really noticed is the the growth of people actually calling themselves content marketing agencies. Yeah. Um, and that's not just calling themselves superficially. They actually are, you know, they they might not have been five years ago, but they are now. So it's, yeah, you're right. A lot of people have that kind of perception of, oh, I keep seeing this content marketing crop up now. It must be a new thing. But no, as you said, it's uh, certainly not a new thing. Mm-hmm. So
3: who are your members? Who, who's a member of the Content Marketing Association?
0: We have members, and again, I know it's a bit of a cop, I was saying everyone, but we have members from your traditional publishers, you know, you're talking your John Brown, your Seven, your Cedars, uh, all the way then to these sort of these new agencies, as, as your, I would call them, sort of people who've been doing probably content for about 10 years, but in the last three or four years, we've really sort of honed in on that. Um, And we also have brands, freelancers. It's it's a real Anybody really who's doing content marketing or who's interested in content marketing uh, can be a member of the CMA. You know, we don't, because we're not sort of, charted in the sense we don't have you have to fill fulfill this criteria so yeah. even if you're a PR agency just thinking mm, actually we do a little bit of content or I wouldn't mind dabbling in a bit yeah. that we have those people in as well so yeah we kind of have members all across the world um getting involved as well so it's a, it's a difficult one to really say who is the one you know it would be easy if we just said publishers um <laughs> but anybody who's creating content really
3: who's the big names on your list like you've mentioned the, the people that I would consider um Traditionally, but what other bigger publishers have you got?
0: I think if you look at the people who are creating sort of content for you know multinational brands, you're talking people like Cedar, Bloomberg, uh, John Brown, yeah. uh, Seven, uh, Arch and Dialogue uh, with Future. So it's it's they're the kind of the. I wouldn't say household names, but they're the yeah. ones who are creating the publishing content that, as you, you know, you and many of your listeners will be familiar with.
3: I mean, Futures are really interesting. one. <laughs> Futures are an interesting company in all sorts of ways, but that idea that they publish their own magazines, their own titles that are on the newsstand or whatever, but they've also got this kind of contract thing going on at the same time. Is that quite common? I think it's.
0: I think they're a bit of an anomaly as well because they. I think their size is... It's crazy, you know. They, you know, they they mm. purchase so many companies. So I think they are a bit of a, a bit of a strange one, really, because they do own so much. So within media, you know, within terms of Time Inc., they bought uh, with Dennis as well. So they, they, they're a strange one. So in terms of the matching, me- many of our other members, we don't have many other members who would sort of fall within that category. I would say. Yeah.
3: So is it some, in terms of actual numbers? There's a lot. Specialist type agencies that they maybe focus on a particular market.
0: Yeah, for instance, like you know, one of our members who's an, you know award winning member is uh, TCO London. They create Huck oh, yeah. and little white lies, and yeah. you know they so they you know they they sell on the newsstand, but they create content for their uh, for their clients, as it were. Uh, because they're all about culture, you know that if you if you want something created in that culture space, they are the people to go to because they have their their publications and they're really rooted in that sector. I would say.
3: Yeah, that idea of making really beautiful magazines and then leveraging that into that kind of content market what that's quite a common well common. It, it's <laughs> it's a it's a sort of standard operating procedure. I, I remember White Light in Edinburgh, uh, who used to do Hot Rum Cow. Yeah. Um, and they used that as a way of getting into the drinks market. And yeah, I'd uh, forgot about uh, Huck and uh, Little White Lies doing content stuff. They did some brilliant stuff in the past.
0: They, yeah, I mean, in the past, they do some great stuff now. <laughs> Last year, they did it. They entered our awards and they did this amazing round of content with, uh, I wasn't familiar with him before that, but a guy called DJ Barbecue. Um, and <laughs> they, they, they were doing it with, oh, I always get it. Um, I always, Arburg the whiskey, but I always say it wrong. Um, oh, Ar- Ardberg. Ardberg. Ardberg, yeah. And they yeah, and yeah. They, and they'd, um, they hired DJ Barbecue to create this a wonderful <laughs> content, written like how to do, you know, uh, he, he went out into the wilds of Scotland and he was cooking salmon on hot coals. And, he, and it was beautifully shot. It was so on brand and it was just great. And it it, it won in our awards last year and it was just, yeah, yeah superb. And, and they could do that because they have all the contacts, they have all the knowledge of that sector as well, you know?
3: so we're both involved in the publishing show uh 8th and 8th of march in london at excel what are you guys going to be doing at the publishing show
0: well we're just going to be happy to be there for a start because it's <laughs> been a, it's been a couple of years since they've let since they've let us out um yeah. so no i think we're, we're we're a media partner and really looking forward to it it'll be the first time that we as the cma have gone there Uh, as partners as well so it's something that the team and I are really looking forward to doing and we're actually running a panel as well and I was really hoping that by the time we recorded this podcast that I would have been had our members confirmed but we're just kind of tinkering on a few things at the moment but yeah we're going to be running a panel uh, with some of our members and yeah, we've done that in the past at other events and it's always gone down really well so yeah really, really looking forward to it and obviously just getting out and seeing people for the first time in a few years
3: <laughs> yeah would be good uh, we're the same we've got a panel but we haven't confirmed the speakers yet either so what's this space
0: we're, so, we're, we're super prepared aren't we you and i <laughs> yeah
3: absolutely. well i think we're actually a little bit ahead of the game for once which is good um what's the, the you know the I guess the sort of things you'd be talking about in that panel, but in general, what's the big trends in content marketing at the moment for for this year?
0: I think, and I'll say I'll say it, and I kind of it's the, I think the biggest trend right now is is agility, and I think following the pandemic, you know, we've had to change not we as in the CMA, well, us as well, but I mean everyone has had to change so frequently uh, the way and the, what people are searching for. You know, and that that doesn't matter whether whether you're a YouTuber looking to create ways of how you're going to fly to Malta during the pandemic or a publisher who's tapping into sort of real-world trends. Um, You know, I I was chatting to one of our members, 7C3, who created the Sainsbury's magazine. And right. they have a team who are just sitting there looking at trends constantly social media monitoring, looking at the news, and they jump on trends ridiculously quickly and get it out there so agility is absolutely massive, and I think it's you know it might be, it might not be a trend it might not just be a trend for 2022 but it might just be the trend going forward that as attention spans kind of change and alter and get shorter um, I think people are going to be looking to more what do i need right now and they're gonna and you're gonna have to be on that as a publisher mm-hmm. but i i also think as well people are searching out content more as well you know i i'm not sure about you maybe it was just the things i was searching for but when cop was in scotland it was on the news all the time and i saw so many brands uh you know recording yeah. podcasts or features or creating content around it and not just Not just purpose-washing, you know, brands with actual, uh, a reason to talk about it. And I think a lot of people were wondering what this is and searching for it. So if you're a brand in that space, you've kind of got to be creating content around these trends, which I think is going to be happening a lot more as people are, 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 you know, genuinely looking for what to look for on the internet.
3: It's interesting, you know, if you compare, well, compare what you've just described with hock. And that you know that whiskey content, and yeah. then what you just described was seven, which is data led. That's a re- there's a really interesting mix there, isn't there? Where one is just pure innovation, creativity, really brilliant ideas around a brand, and then the other one is this kind of consumer led, data driven stuff. As a as a kind of two ends of the, the content marketing spectrum, I think that's really interesting.
0: And I don't think either either of those are easier or harder than the other. I think that's I think as you're right in pointing out, they're really just even within the same space, they're just two complete opposite ways of of getting involved. Whether yeah. it's like as you said, the long drawn out storyboards and all this kind of stuff, you know, <laughs> lo- location shots, um, and then you've got people then who are like, right, there's a trend that happened on the British Bake Off last night. Let's create <laughs> two pages on that. And I think they both have their place, and they're both uh, something that happens a lot, you know.
3: Yeah, one's almost like a new. It's almost like news, isn't it? You know that kind of agility that you've talked about. It's like you've got to be on it. And social media, I guess, is driving so much of that.
0: Yeah, and I think the big thing around you know, it's no, it's no new term, but news jacking. You know, and I think a lot of our, a lot of our newer members who sort of that you go on their websites, they offer that as a service. They're the people who are kind of, as you said, they're creating content around that. So it's almost, it's almost mixing sort of pr newsjacking and creating content in a, in you know, hyper fast you know we get entries into our awards and the you know although we give people 12 months you know the work is going to fall within 12 months we've had some entries which has been you know we jumped on this topic within like three days and within three weeks we'd had these incredible achievements and it's yes yeah, which is quite strange because obviously content marketing is a much slower burn you know it's it's all about engaging people it's all about educating um, it's taking people on a journey and looking to really change people's thoughts over a period of time rather than bam here's a bit of content buy our stuff which is you know it's quite nice to see when it actually does do that as well
3: I think it's interesting if you look at that you know if you take the kind of helicopter view of it all these things fitting together like social media content marketing straightforward newsstand publishing web whatever the there's this continuous spectrum there and i just wonder where do you think content marketing should sit in the kind of i don't know operational or revenue mix for a publisher
0: yeah well i'll i'll, I'll take the easy out yeah it depends <laughs> no it depends on the publisher and i you know some of our members create published content that's monetized whether that's through the cover price subscriptions ad space you know, other than create content to improve the publication. And and not to say that one does the and the other doesn't. But you know, you're talking of, you know, 7C3, for example, you know, they sell Sainsbury's magazine. Um uh, to you know, to continue the, the conversation we were having about Huck, they sell a cover price, but they also have ad revenue. They also create content for their clients yeah. that sit within. So they, there's a real mix there. But in terms so I think on the Revenue mix, it really does depend on the size of the publication and obviously the goals within uh, within that. Uh, the I had uh, Andrew Hirsch, who was the ex-chairman from the CMA, and he uh, ran John Brum uh, on my podcast. And he was telling me that when in the early days of his career, uh, Viz was making so much money that it covered the all the sort of passion projects and you know he then worked on all these sort of smaller content marketing publications but the goal wasn't really revenue because there was so much money coming in from their paid for magazines so they could kind of yeah. just treat these as and I really loved that because he was kind of that wasn't the goal for that those magazines he was talking about and I, I believe out of one of those magazines I'm pretty sure I got this right but like that's where Waitrose Food came from as well one of those food magazines so mm-hmm. just because he was not looking to it, 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 the content marketing wasn't part of their revenue mix, or it was a small part. But in terms of operational, I think, yeah, definitely, the, the, reach, you know, the job of publishers people, oh, sorry, engage and educate people. And content marketing is great at doing that, great at achieving engagement with an audience. So even if content marketing isn't a huge part of your revenue mix as a, as a sort of publisher, operationally, it, it, it has to be. And you know, especially going forward, more and more people are – looking you know and I'm not going to talk about sort of the diminishing trust of ads or the diminishing eyeballs on um, long ads but I mean people actually search for content marketing and spend time reading and sort of engaging with content marketing so I think that yeah it has to be part of your mix if you're a publisher.
3: I think that idea of value is really important isn't it? Absolutely absolutely. the the idea that you're giving people real content not just filling space kind of thing. Do you find that with publishers, they tend to separate out their content marketing staff from their publication staff, or or is it all mixed up together? Or does, again, does that depend on the publisher?
0: Yeah, do you know what? I'm just thinking of a couple. I'm just looking now, and I'm trying to think of a couple of my members who I've you know went and visited and before lockdown. And yeah, I think it does depend. There, I think there are people who kind of are, are borrowed. I think that you know they'll they'll yeah. spend time on the content marketing, but then they'll they'll then go and work within other places, you know, and I I had um, the head of content from future on my podcast as well, you know, and she, she works across different titles. She, she was working across sort of five or six different magazines, um, but then also worked sort of internally looking at strategics. So that was just really kind of, I, don't, I from my experience, I don't think there's anyone who's just, that's just the content team and we don't have right. anyone else. I think they do work across, um, you know, the, the, the publication and, Looking at content marketing as well,
3: so that idea that content's content—if it's good for one's audience, or if it's good for the audience, then it's it's good. Then that's that's enough, really.
0: Yeah, and it's it's hard as well because I you know I I understand that some publications want to ring fence their you know they're they creating revenue from sure. their magazine so they can't exactly just give out you know you can't have a website if you've got a magazine all about cars you it's hard then to have a content marketing website which which gives all, a lot of that information away for for free so it's yeah. it's it, it is a, it is a difficult one but i that's why i definitely think it has to be in the mix somewhere you know whether it's youtube videos you create creating or whether it's a quarterly publication that you a online publication that is you know free to read or something you know something needs to be a hook there but i appreciate it is difficult
3: so if you look at your awards recently um yep. what's your all time favorite content marketing project <laughs> so that's almost an impossible question but
0: yeah well do you know it's, it's impossible but i got I, I got two two answers and one one of them is kind of my favorite because um, and it's not from my awards. Uh, it's not from any awards because it's from over a hundred years ago. But it's huh. it's the Michelin Guide, and oh, it's when yeah. yeah. yeah so when I, when I started working for the CMA back in two thousand and eighteen, a lot of my friends were like, "Oh, content, uh, what is that?" <laughs> um, and I, I came up with a little analogy which kind of worked for a little bit. But then when you when you know people in the industry or speak to people in the industry, the analogy is too simple for them so I kind of spoke to my friends and sort of told them about this you know the Michelin guide and I think that was so good because you know it was the 1900s there weren't many cars around They their goal was to get more people driving because they knew that when people drove they had people they had to people had to get new tires and and I just loved the fact that they created this publication which got people out and got people learning about these restaurants these oh. um, destinations and then what I think is even to take it on one step further um, it started as a free magazine or the a free publication, um, which a lot of people kind of don't don't know. So it started as a free publication and then they then went after about wow, 15 years or so, it became a paid publication. So it's kind of I love the evolution of it that it started yeah. as a free piece of content marketing and then it got to the point where they were like, This is so good now, people should be paying for this. Um and and it's you know, and now people talk about Michelin stars or don't actually know where it came from and i think that's kind of the so for me that is a great example and i think even you know there's lots of people out there who confuse native advertising content marketing content but i think that there is like a really simple and stellar piece of like content marketing that really hammers home what it is
3: yeah i mean you forget it's got anything to do with the tires don't you but the idea of driving and run sort of wearing down your tires because you were driving to restaurants just
0: brilliant Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and to be honest, I it's, it's a bit of a cheat, but I think the the ones that stand out for me as well as in, as incredible pieces of content year after year, judges, just say, you know, the Waitrose magazine, Sainsbury's magazine, the British Airways magazine, those, those sort of three, um, you know, I could name so many more, but those three, the sort of year after year are judges. And, and to do that year after year as well, a lot of people might think... Yeah oh, waitress! magazine, oh, it's, it's, it's easy, you know, it's, but it's absolutely not. To steward a magazine for over 20 years and to keep people reading it, to keep it looking great. And so th- those magazines that I just mentioned, there, they're the, they're the ones that are kind of doing content marketing. They have been doing it for a long time and they're still getting great numbers, which is, yeah. you know, what's, what's that? Um, there's like a phrase like get in there is the easy part, stay in there is the hard part. And I think yeah, that kind of, for me, that kind of shows where the levels they're at really.
3: Definitely. Um we always ask our guests for a recommendation. Um anything really, an article or a book or a podcast or a film. What would you recommend for our listeners?
0: Uh, do you know I, I I'm not sure if I was I've recommended this book to a few people and every time I recommend it, people have read it. So it's the um, <laughs> yeah, so so I don't know if I'm just a very simple person. Um and it but I, I think the um a book that I recommend to everyone is uh, Shoe Dog by Phil Knight um oh. yeah he's the and it's it's amazing because it's not a business book it's not an autobiography it's not a self-help book but yeah it's like all three it's such yeah. it's such a good book it's all about how he started Nike um and and all the sort of the trials and tribulations and all the, the downfalls and the successes and it's it's just a really it's it's a light read you know it's an it's a nice there's nothing sort of hard hitting in there but it's such such a good book um mm-hmm. and I think yeah so I definitely recommend that and I you know as for podcasts, I would definitely check out a coffee with the CME.
3: Yeah, well, that goes without <laughs> saying. Uh, brilliant, Rob. Thank you so much. I hope very much, all things being equal, to see you in March at the Publishing Show. Hope Omicron just goes away and we can all just go and enjoy meeting up. Um,
0: yeah, absolutely. I'm lo- looking forward to meeting you in London. Uh, yeah, in March, yeah. I'd be lo- really, look- really looking forward to that.
3: So as you have from my conversation with Rob, we will be at the publishing show March 8th and 9th, uh, Excel in London, and we are having our lessons for publisher podcast panel. We did it last year and we're doing it again, and you really need to come along. And if you want to find out more, just go to thepublishingshow.com.
1: In the meantime, don't forget to go to voices.media and sign up to our daily newsletter. It contains the four most interesting stories from the previous day it's curated by us especially for you and it also contains every so often a picture of esther's birthday baby
2: only once a year <laughs>
3: <laughs> and despite my complaining about subscription revenues it's a very important part of the mix and on our coffee page you can go along and you can contribute to the funding of this wonderful podcast enterprise
1: Don't laugh when you're saying wonderful.
3: (laughs) This optimistic podcast enterprise.
2: But until next week, when we'll be back with another fantastic guest, goodbye.
1: See
3: you later. Bye-bye. Don't go go to videovoices.com. God knows what's on that. Go to voices.media and find a little support button.
1: Yes, yeah, it's porn. <laughs>